Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 208, and today's guest is Chanel Fields, founder and CEO of MD Ally. A sign of a great entrepreneur is someone who has the drive, the hustle, and that unique ability to not only recognize opportunities where things can improve, but also the ability to follow through and take action to create something. This entrepreneurial trait for Chanel started at a young age, as she remembers selling her artwork at family barbecues, and it only continued to build from there. She later took the initiative while working at Athena Health by founding the company's first ethnic diversity business resource group, which was well ahead of its time, and it ultimately grew to 775 members globally. Now she is the founder of a company called MD Ally, a public safety telehealth company that is working to ensure the appropriate use of emergency resources and improve patient outcomes, which is a game changer. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like advice for landing media coverage and public speaking opportunities, Chanel's background growing up and the foundation of her professional career at AT&T and Athena Health, all the details on MD Ally and how they are using telehealth to optimize the system for 911 and EMS resources, her experience participating in MASH Challenge and Techstars, plus what she is hoping to accomplish with her new role as a board member at Techstars, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. If you are listening to this podcast, then it is highly likely that you are interested in the founder journey and lessons learned around building companies. So please make sure you don't miss any future episodes by subscribing to the VentureFizz podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Oh, and definitely don't forget to leave us a review because it really helps us get discovered. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Chanel. Chanel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because you've done uh, a lot throughout your career. Uh, and there's a, a great company that you're currently building. But when I when I do my research on guests, I always try to find little pieces of, of their story. And what I continuously found about you is you've had a lot of coverage in the media and a lot of entrepreneurs strive to have that type of coverage. I mean, we're talking New York Times, Good Morning America, you spoke in, you know, NBC News, uh, you've been a, you know, a speaker at many conferences. So what advice would you give to founders on uh, trying to obtain that type of media coverage? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I get, I've gotten this question a bit since last year. Um, and I feel like part of the answer is not that riveting. And then part of the answer maybe might be a little helpful. Um, you know, to be honest, on my end, I didn't do any kind of formalized PR efforts or campaigns. So these were all um, inbound requests um, to learn more about what MDLI was uh, doing. Um, so I think we were pretty lucky in that regard. And I just want to be kind of honest about that piece of it. Um, and then just saying yes to those opportunities, um, uh, then one after the other, I think you know that kind of really picked up on, on that PR front. Um, but one thing I do think um, is helpful when it comes to getting those opportunities or subsequent ones is being, it sounds really cliche, being genuine <laughs> and being honest. And I say it says, I don't mean it in kind of like the, you know, self-love sort of way. I mean it actually in um, the way where I think that founders are naturally or innately interesting people. 
Um, but there's a lot of expectations that when you're in front of the media or you're doing interviews that you kind of say cookie cutter things. And so I find a lot of founders that I think are really interesting, you know, one-on-one -on -one, that when they get in front of, you know, a, a journalist or, or doing any kind of interview or conference, they say pretty standard things, right? Um, where it might not actually be what they think, but they're kind of like just trying to stay within the lines. Whereas normally they could be founding something completely unique. Um, and that's one of the bigger pieces of advice that I, I would say is just be really honest and, and transparent and say what you think. Um, it can be a bit scary because I think people do overthink the repercussions of that. Um, but I think that being genuine and actually sharing your unique viewpoint uh, is what then makes that interview interesting for the journalist and for the other people that you're talking to. So a lot of those conversations um, maybe they were supposed to be 15 minute interviews, but we talked for like an hour, right? Because I was genuinely interested in them. They were interested in me, you know, and then we had a really great conversation. Um, so I think that uh, people should ease up a bit and have fun in those interviews and feel free to say more things um, uh, rather than, you know, be like, I have to be a CEO and I have to say these things and I can't, you know, deviate from that. What about like the nerves piece? If someone's like super nervous to talk to someone on, you know, Good Morning America, like TV or a, a journalist from uh, the New York Times? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's the same thing. Like even when I was doing like the Good Morning America interview, right? There's a before things start rolling and after, and the conversations on the bookends of those were just really fun conversations that I was having with them, right? Not related to the business, asking what they're doing, you know, oh, where do you, whatever, where did you get that? Or I, things that I'm seeing around them like that I think are interesting because I don't know, maybe it's my attempts to not like, I like to be interested in different things. Um, and so just having a conversation and then you're interviews and that kind of tend to just be in the middle of that you know conversation they carve out the pieces that they really need um but i think even you know in those cases uh do that because it can help you relax as well right if you're just thinking about it as a conversation versus like i'm doing this interview thing yeah that's great great advice all right let's rewind the clock so where where'd you grow up and what were you like as a child um okay gosh where, so i grew up long island new york um, and in Atlanta, so probably, you know, half and half. My, my family moved from Long Island down to Atlanta um, when I was, I think, in middle school or high school. Um, what was I like as a child? That's a hard question because I feel like I can answer what one of my siblings were like, but I don't know what they would say about how I was. I was amazing. I was a darling. I was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, let's see, I, you know, my family's really close. And so uh, I think we all have our very distinct personalities. Um, but, uh, you know, in our family, you know, something that we did a lot was like debate, debating different topics. Um, so my parents are have been happily married for over four years. But like my mom is like a devout Christian, my father is an atheist, and they have like a happy, wonderful marriage. Um, and we debate a lot of topics like that. Um, and so I think that that was a big part of me uh, as a child that is also, uh, you know, remained with me as I've grown up is I find like very varying different viewpoints really interesting. Um, so like Republican, Democrat, I'm like, great, let's get into it. Let's talk about all these different things on both ends. Um, and so I think that that was probably something about me as a kid 
uh, was really enjoying those sorts of discussions or debates, even maybe if I was too young to do so. You think you were always uh, entrepreneurial? Yeah, so that's, I guess, another thread in our family. Um, you know, my my dad was very supportive uh, of entrepreneurship and, and one himself. Um, and I, I have some pretty early stories of trying to make and, and sell things. Um, I remember my grandfather told me recently he got me a doll when I was really young and that I did something like I like remodeled her and then asked him to take me back to Toys R Us to see if they would buy it. And he was like, just <laughs> Um, so I, I have a lot of stories that I hear from them around those sorts of things every year. Um, you know, I used to do a lot of finger painting and then forcing those sales on my family members at any events. Um, so I, I think I like to create things and, um, you know, uh, I guess sell them as well, but I really do love to, you know, creating different things and, uh, you know, seeing how it adds value, however much finger painting really adds value. I don't know. <laughs> I love early stories like that though. It's uh, that's just the, showing the roots of a foundation of somebody that's going to build a great company someday. So uh, what would you went to Cornell? So what did you, uh, what would you study there? Um, I studied sociology or in social psychology um, in undergrad, uh, which I think was one of the best things uh, and best decisions that I ever made. Um, I think it's probably what makes me comfortable, right? When we're talking about the topic of like with interviews, uh, it makes me comfortable around people and understanding um, different norms and actions. Um, and it's also really helped when it comes to sales. So, um, you know, I think that probably a lot of people who are very good at sales and comfortable with sales um, understand some of those social dynamics um, at a theoretical level and can apply them. Uh, so, yeah, that's what I majored in for, for undergrad. Um, and then uh, in business school, major was uh, healthcare management, entrepreneurship and innovation. Got it. Okay. Now, so what kind of the foundation of your career? So like, how did you get started? Like first jobs out of school type of things? Yeah, I had a weird first, well, not a weird first job, like an odd one, but um, out of undergrad, I worked for AT&T and they have or had at the time, a couple of companies had this at the time, actually, an executive leadership development program but it's like a rotational program. I don't know how many of those are still around, but there are like these really intense um, rotational programs. Uh, and I did that uh, out of undergrad. And essentially I was a, a level two manager with AT&T as like one of my first jobs out of college. Mm -hmm. um, and it was quite interesting because I was running... Um, locations or stores for them in the New York City area at a very young age uh, and managing people at a very young age, right? Like a lot of my employees were older than me. Right. Um, and uh, I, it was, it was, you know, kind of just being thrown into the fire in that regard um, where you're really having to learn how to, to manage uh, folks quickly. Again, understanding different social dynamics, right? Are you coaching someone who's who 
times plus your age, um, which is your job, uh, folks that are younger than you, uh, you know, all of those different dynamics. Um, and I think that really, I was probably pretty bad at it at first. Not probably, I'm, I know, <laughs> I was bad at it. Um, but I, I did learn quickly how to uh, become good at people management uh, and understand how to support my team. Um, and I think that that also has really helped me in my, my career, um, even before founding a company, right? Uh, it's understanding how to, how to build and, and work with a team and coach them. Um, but yeah, that was my first job out of undergrad and it was a, an amazing learning experience. Um, and I, I really appreciate everything I learned from that. Yeah, I hope the rotational programs still exist out there. I'm pretty sure they do with the larger companies. If they don't, that would be a shame because it's just the great foundational opportunity for someone to learn a lot at a very you know young age and get exposed yeah. to different leadership challenges, management challenges, differently. You know, a lot of the rotations you get exposure to different facets of a business. So uh, I think they're still around. At least they better be. Um, now, from there, um, was was Athena Health the next stop after that? Yeah, so after that, uh, after AT&T, I was with Athena. Um, and so Athena Health is a, a, well, let's say digital health or healthcare tech company, healthcare IT company um, that uh, was, I mean, pretty, and still is a pretty innovative and great company to work for. Um, I was, I led multiple teams while I was there um, from, small group, group, uh, enterprise, uh, inside sales, marketing uh, in the enterprise space as well. Um, but it's a great company to work for. It's a really great company also because so many people there, I think, are of the mindset of um, driving disruption. And um, it really kind of teaches you to think about things from that framework of, uh, you know, what is the status quo and then quickly, you know, the, thinking through what are the benefits of disrupting it and how to do that. Um, so I think it really challenged my thinking in that way. Uh, and so growing through my career there was just incredibly um, educational. And like a big piece of your experience there was um, like running inside sales for part of the business too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you think that sales experience has taught you, you know, kind of another foundational block of, of being an entrepreneur? Yeah. I mean, so that's the core of any business. Like if you think about it, I think of this all the time. I think it's a really interesting thing. Every single company that exists, a hundred percent of them only exists because of sales. It doesn't matter if they've been around for 200 years like that is the core of every single business is sales. Um, I remember one time I raised this point when I was coming, you know, from a business school standpoint, it's like, oh, you guys should be teaching sales because that's actually the core of every single business. I, I agree with that point, by the way, like sales should be taught somehow, some way, whether it's B school or even the undergraduate, there should be something like, it's not the curriculum, but it's part of it. Like, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's incredibly useful um, even if you're not going to be a salesperson, because it helps you understand how to take something and convey its value, yep. right? And that applies in so many different areas, right? If you're a consultant or you're trying to persuade your boss to do a project, 
you've got to, you know, approach it in a way where you are explaining the value and you're selling them on that concept, right? Um, when you're getting an approval for something. So you sell yourself when you're interviewing for a job. Everyone has to sell at some point in time and probably more often than they think. Um, and uh, I, I think that that was just, it, again, it's just such a great experience to have, especially when it's something that you can be comfortable with. Um, I think a lot of people are intimidated by sales, but it's really just getting excited about something and then communicating that effectively. Um, that's sales. That's it. Now, something else that I thought was really interesting about your experience at Athena Health is uh, you, you started and led Athena's Ethnic Diversity Business Resource Group, which now is commonly referred to as Employee Resource Groups. Now, this is 2014. So this was before you know, right now, employee resource groups are pretty common at most companies, but in 2014, they were not. So, so what led you down the path of starting that? Yeah. Um, so I started the Athena Diversity Council um, really because I guess it's, 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 it's entrepreneurship, right? Like you see a problem and you feel like you've have you've got to fix this thing right and so uh it's not really asking someone else to fix it it's like okay i'm going to find a solution to this thing um so with the athena diversity council something that i noticed uh was that there wasn't a, a lot of ethnic diversity within the company um especially at senior levels as myself an ambitious person i am like well that's got to change because i'm here now so <laughs> you know and and, uh, you know, what's, what are the blockers there? What's going on? Um, that, I think, coupled with my, let's say, sociology background is like, okay, a lot of what goes into that is like unconscious bias. Great. We've identified it. We can fix it. Everyone's got unconscious biases. Let's call them out. Let's get some traction or progress here. Um, and it was just starting with that in, in mind, right? And I think it started pretty simply where um, I just, you know, sent out a, a, an email to folks and said, listen, I want to have some meetings around this, um, gave it a name, right? Things, it's easier when you give a thing a name, a concept a name, so people can start wrapping their, their uh, minds around that um, and then put a team together to, to work on it. So it's all volunteer um, and uh, the, it was all volunteers of the company. It grew to 20% of the company globally. Wow. So, um, Athena yeah, Health is a big company. So that's, that's a big yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like me. And, uh, then I just, uh, started to bring more people in, right. Talk about the vision of it. Folks got excited and it became pretty big. So it was grassroots. It was all grassroots and then it became really too big for leadership to ignore. And then they started to fund it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I thought it was, it was a great experience. I got to travel to India, uh, because it was popular in India as well. Um, so it was, it was such a great experience, um, you know, doing that. Plus I had my day job of, you know, enterprise, uh, inside sales, which, I mean, I think the key thing there is like, you've got to be crushing it at your, your, uh, primary role. Um, while also leading this, uh, in addition to that. Um, but it was, a it was a really great experience. And I, I think it, it added, it allowed people to contribute to the company in ways, uh, that were outside of maybe their, their normal, uh, roles. And I think that was also something that people found pretty fulfilling. Um, 
it ended up being on people's like annual appraisal. Like it was really, it was really a cool thing. I loved it. That, that is so cool. Like I just, it's, it's good to know that Athena Health was one of the, you know, early adopters of employee resource groups. And uh, it's pretty remarkable what you accomplished building that from scratch. Now, so then like you've built this great career so far and then you decide to go to Wharton, which obviously is amazing, but uh, like what went into your decision of going to, to B school and like, what advice would you give to others that are kind of like, like you, where you had a great career and you were probably on a great trajectory yet to, you know, go to business school and, and like kind of what, what should someone thinking about when they're kind of wrestling with that decision? Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll answer a different question that you didn't ask first, which I think is how um, helped me to, how to think about trajectory and career. I had an amazing mentor. Her name was Leslie Bruner. She was one of the founders or founding team members of Athena, probably the first five people there. And she was a senior VP at the company. Um, and uh, I worked with her a lot on the Athena Diversity Council and other initiatives, but she was incredibly successful, right? Um, and she gave me uh, advice pretty early on around how she's managed her own career. And, you know, she kind of said, people think it's like this straight line uh, up and to the right, but it's not, it's more, you know, you go up, down, across, up, down, across. And she talked about strategically, time she had strategically like uh, not moved into another role or demoted herself uh, in order to gain a new skill set and um, how to approach it from that standpoint. Uh, it was really useful. Um, so for example, I was in sales and then I demoted myself to a, a lower marketing role um, because I wanted to know sales and marketing. And then when I got back into sales, I actually got into a more senior role because I was the only candidate that knew both sales and marketing. <laughs> so it was really, I was like, well, there's not really much competition here because all your other candidates only know sales. So I can do both. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that those were the sorts of things that she really taught me. So when it came to like going to business school, um, you know, it was really about, again, expanding my, my uh, skill set and learning. Um, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I knew I was going to leave eventually. And that was something I was pretty open about while I was there. Um, but uh, going to business school, I was like, okay, well, I don't know how to do, uh, you know, gap accounting or these other things that I, I'm going to have to do as a, uh, an entrepreneur. So it was pretty like um, practical. Uh, of how I was going to fill in some of those gaps. Um, and I also just love learning. So it was a good opportunity to, to make a, a lateral or a down move and uh, attain some of that knowledge. And, and that's how I ended up going to Wharton and um, building my business. That's, that's great, great feedback. Um, all right, let's talk about your current company, MD Ally. So how'd you come up with the idea and what's the problem you guys are solving? Yeah, so MDLA is a 911 telehealth company. Um, we are focused on integrating telemedicine into the 911 dispatch and uh, EMS response process. Um, there's a lot of non-emergency calls that go into the 911 system. And uh, people call for things like headaches, sore throat, toe pain. Um, we um, have had examples of like a woman calling in because her daughter ate an expired donut, just different things that are reloaded. Yeah, I know. And, and they have to respond to that, right? Like there's 
like do they yeah, send out an ambulance and like that's yeah it's an expired donut come on man that's, that's <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um but yeah, you you know, there's that that uh, they need to have to respond, and uh, it's really decreases ambulance availability, especially for other people who are having an emergency. So, like, I might call in with my horrible toe pain and take. There are only so many ambulances, right? If it's first come first serve, I might take that next, the last one that's available, and then you could have a heart attack ten minutes later and be waiting for quite a bit of time, right? Um, which you don't have time to wait. So um, it actually increases rates of dead on arrivals. Um, and I had learned about that um, and decided to do something about it, right? Uh, my, you know, something we haven't talked about much yet, but my father was a volunteer EMT mm, when I was okay. growing up. So EMS was a big part of my childhood on Long Island. Um, it's part of the Hunting Kid for Seed Squad. And um, I really uh, have this profound respect, a foundational respect for 911 and, and public safety, because um, that was really my first introduction into the healthcare space um, and where we spent quite a bit of time growing up. And uh, you know, something that everyone knows about EMS is that whether you've got $5 in your pocket or $5 million, regardless, they're responding to everyone in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are some of these other factors that create operational inefficiencies um, that can actually result in, in loss of life for no other reason than uh, overutilization of emergency resources. So MDLI uh, enables uh, triage to telehealth for dispatchers and first responders so that they can provide you, or actually I was a non-emergency case, right? So me with the ability to speak to a provider virtually instead of uh, taking an ambulance to the hospital where I would probably be waiting for five, six hours and get a huge bill um, for it. So that's what we do. Um, you know, the, and that kind of covers also where a bit of the, the idea came from, but out of that research uh, and findings that it increases rates of dead on arrivals, um, especially in certain communities where there's less availability. How would the process work if um, like, is it the dispatcher that would just like offer it up as an option? Because the dispatcher obviously is not a medically trained professional to decide what the the need should be, right? Um, yeah. So there are tools uh, that the dispatchers use um, to determine acuity level, um, and that's how you know they're determining if you're going to get a, a basic life support or advanced life support ambulance responding, or none if there's none available. Um, but it, the way that it's presented from the, the patient side of things is essentially the dispatcher would be able to say, you know, Keith, we can send an ambulance um, if that's what you'd like. But there's also, we have another option available to you. And then you choose. Right. So, I, you know, we really take the approach of the patient deciding what's your preference. And so I would say, you know, Keith. Your copay, I'm sure it's horrible, um, but uh, we can actually connect you to a, a provider um, that can give you some guidance. We'll connect you in the next 10 to 15 minutes, um, and then it, it's up to you. Um, or you know, we could do you know a live transfer over to telehealth as well. Um, so you could say at that point, no, I want an ambulance, and then you're going to you know get what you have available today, which is an ambulance to ER, or you could opt to. Um, stay in the comfort of your own home and uh, have a telehealth encounter. 
So you started your business, is it a couple of years ago or within the past couple of years, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I started doing concept validation when I was in business school, um, uh, but I started working on it full-time after graduation. So uh, in, in 2019, fall of that year, um, and then throughout last year uh, as well. Because, you know, there's certain ideas that it's like, you're too early to market, right? Yet, when you look at your business, it's one of those where it's like, yes, makes sense. And the, the time is now, right? People with the pandemic, telemedicine, it's just part of how you're treated now. So just from an outsider looking in, I'm like, okay, <laughs> the timing is now for this option to help alleviate the 911 system. Yeah, yeah, no, um, that, that's, you know, it, that's exactly right. The, I think that there's, when it makes sense, Right. It probably made sense. I mean, telehealth has been around for a while. Right. Um, yeah. It's not new. So, yeah. It's <laughs> like not Zoom new. Call, Zoom's not like Zoom calls are not new. <laughs> like, like exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, so there's aspects of this that have existed and uh, it's really adoption. It, go, it underscores how much adoption is important <laughs> um, because it could be the right thing and make the most sense, um, but there are other factors that might prevent it from getting implemented. Um, so from a, a timing perspective, I think that we were pretty lucky because there's also a lot of support from it for things like, uh, from entities like CMS, um, uh, so Centers for Medicaid and Medicare, um, having published their own research around um, inappropriate utilization of the public safety system and the costs related to that. Uh, and so there's really a, a lot of um, different factors uh, from a timing perspective that really support that this is the time to, to really put this into practice. Um, and also a lot of consumers have adopted it, right? I mean, it is definitely a more convenient way to get care. I mean, when you think about you would have to take off from work, go drive somewhere for, sit in the waiting room for half an hour, 45 minutes to be seen for like five or 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when, you know, it, and they might not do anything, right? Like, you know, as far as a physical examination, you just wanted to talk to them and tell them what's going on and maybe show them something. Um, and you can do that through telehealth. So. Um, yeah, we really feel like this is the, uh, this is really the future of healthcare. Um, and it really also is the best time, you know, for, for public safety systems as they're grappling with things like COVID. And, um, you know, there were the protests last year um, that they, uh, you know, fire and EMS uh, was um, busy with managing those. Uh, and also like wildfires. Um, so it was a, it was, we all know 2020 was extra, right? So yeah, it was a busy year, <laughs> yeah, was a busy year for public safety. Um, and, you know, that really, I think was part of it. And then we also thought about um, with law enforcement, how we support uh, interactions between citizens and law enforcement as it relates to elemental health services. Um, so, you know, adding additional resources uh, in the time of those interactions to help to de-escalate and provide more tools for de-escalation and management um, is a big part of our, our mission and how we think about where we can contribute. 
Now, part of um, building out your business, you've been part of a couple of accelerators, so Mass Challenge and Techstars. So talk about your experience in those programs and how that helps you further your business and like advice you'd give to, to founders as far as thinking about applying to an accelerator. Yeah, um, you know, I think accelerators are really great tools to, to leapfrog um, and to have resources pooled and concentrated on your, your company. Um, so there are uh, a number of accelerators out there now, and I think that founders, from their standpoint, really just need to have a pretty strong understanding of what it is they need at the end of that accelerator. So thinking about it as what do you want to be different three months from now, four or five months from now versus at the start of it. Um, and then you just match that up with the accelerator and what they're offering. Um, so I think that that's a universal thing for all accelerators, you know, taking a look at what's the value prop um, and how specific and close can it be to what you're building. So I think that, that those are the accelerators where I feel like they can really um, add a, a lot of value. Um, I, you know, if they have certain factors that really apply to your company, so like healthcare ones or uh, ones that have a, a lot of, you know, connectivity. Uh, for example, Techstars has a United Healthcare one, right? So I think that those were very concentrated and it gives the founder the ability to really understand where they're going to be at the end of that accelerator. Well, I think uh, to kind of parlay on the accelerator discussion, I think uh, congr congratulations are in order. So you were recently appointed as a member of the board of directors for Techstars, which uh, I've, you know, Techstars, uh, Y Combinator originally started in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then uh, we're doing split programs between the Valley and Boston, but then Paul Graham wanted to be in one spot. So they moved out of Boston and mm -hmm. Techstars came in right after. And what they accomplished was so much, like every program for Techstars Boston has been phenomenal. So we've been a long time supporter. Mass Challenge is amazing too. But so you're part of this top accelerator program as a you know member of their board of directors. Like what, what are you hoping to accomplish in that position? Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it's similar to the kind of things we're talking about in this discussion, really, the uh, reason I was invited to join the board was to add a founder point of view. Um, so uh, I, with a, a company that has a main clientele that are founders, um, and they really need to understand that that founder voice, uh, what are the needs related to um the, their companies, both currently in the program and alumni. Um, and that's the biggest you know, piece from having actually gone through their accelerator um, and knowing it you know, pretty, pretty uh, intimately, um, then being on the board and being able to provide that unique uh, point of view in the discussions. Um, and then also, I, you know, I am an early stage founder. So there are aspects of what they're talking about that I, I can almost be going through or managing at the same time um, and can give a very like real point of view, um, not just for myself, but also for other founders. So I meet with a lot of founders, um, both at Techstars and not at Techstars um, with the office hours that I have on Sundays. And that it really gives me a pretty strong point of view on founders, plus all the black panels and different groups. Um, so that's the main uh, viewpoint that I'm adding uh, through the board. Well, you know, something else that, you know, is very important is obviously uh, funding more diverse entrepreneurs. So like, 
what can we be doing to help solve that major problem? Yeah, you know, I think that that is an interesting question. Um, I was asked this on a, a, an interview um, earlier today, and I have a very definitive viewpoint on this, um, which is when it comes to investing in founders or diverse, culturally diverse founders, I think that really the answer to how that gets solved is going to be with the investors themselves. Um, and it's hard to answer as a founder because the investor is really the ones that are making the decisions around which companies that they fund. Um, and so I really often um, either have conversations with investors about uh, their decision-making and how they're focusing on actually putting dollars into culturally diverse businesses uh, or women-led businesses. Um, but I think that that's something that uh, is a question that I feel is more productive when it's, it's uh, with investors who can provide insight to their investments, investment thesis um, and how they kind of make those decisions because they are also ultimately gonna be the ones that have to really manage unconscious bias, right? Um, it's not something the founder can help them with. Uh, so if they, you know, those questions are, are usually asked to the founder, but I think that actually um, if it's asked more often to the investors, then that's going to uh, encourage them to think about those things and how they can dismantle them uh, for founders in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think we're making progress, right? Like there's least awareness that's been building and I'm just hopeful at this time it's sustained awareness, not just you know based on you know current events type of awareness. But um, yeah, I think there's yeah. a, a lot more that's building, and hopefully it's you know long-term solution to come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I agree. I think that um, the it, it can't be short-term, right? Like if we're going to evolve as a society and do better, then it it has to be permanent. It has to be long-lasting. So uh, building a company for the first time, what's your biggest lesson learned? Biggest lesson learned. Um, I'd say that my biggest lesson learned is probably how to remain engaged and excited about <laughs> attaining a very tough mission over a long period of time. So I don't know if you ever talk about this, but like everyone's like overnight success, and then the founder's uh, like, <laughs> like ten years. <laughs> um, overnight success story, of course, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and I think that's the, that's the cookie that all founders have to crack, right? Is everyone on the outside wants like this instant, like rocket ship, and it's like it's much more challenging and longer term than that. Um, and so it's like, how do you refresh your mission? How do you keep the spark alive? <laughs> is I think one of the bigger uh, lessons learned. Um, so, you know, with me, I, I'm pretty lucky again, because I work uh, for or in support of first responders and dispatchers. And like when, you know, you think about their roles and what they're getting up and doing every day, um, you know, it's easy to find inspiration from that. Uh, a, a lot of the folks in, in our company and on our team our former first responders. And so that's constantly something that's fueling our discussions internally. Um, and so I think that that's probably one of the bigger lessons as a founder is how to, how to really keep that peace um, at all times. Yeah, and that's real. I mean, it's, it's hard to get caught up 
or it's hard not to get caught up in what you see every day in in the media, whether it's TechCrunch or Axios. It's like every company just achieved this valuation of a billion dollars, or and you're just like, oh, am I behind? Like you just feel like you're behind. Yet it's very few of those companies that are hitting that, and it's uh, it's it's a lot of work to get there. And a lot of these companies have been around for years that finally hit that milestone. It's not you know, one year out of the gates type of thing. So I think that is something that does get lost in all the news coverage of some of these uh, unicorns. Yeah. And I think it's about knowing that your that headline, the next one is yours, right? Like right. yours yep. is the next one up. So you just keep going until it, it, it comes to fruition. So what are uh, three apps you can't live without? Three apps I cannot live without. Okay, one I just shared with my team <laughs> like a couple of hours ago, and I was like, I'm gonna let you guys in on this. Uh, but I'm in, you know, healthcare, GovTech. Uh, there's a lot of reading <laughs> of uh, different, uh, you know, materials, and um, I love speed reading apps. I don't know if you've ever used those. No, I have not. But, okay, try out. Hold on, let me find the name for. Okay, there's one like called Swift Read. Okay. And essentially it, it'll have a word. Okay. So you focus on like this dot or this letter in the middle of a screen, mm -hmm. and then it speed reads through the whole article for you. So you can read like 700 words a minute. What? Uh, yes. It's amazing. Check, check that out. It, out. it is amazing. After this. Yeah. Um, but that is one of the best things. If you have a lot of things that you need to consume quickly, mm -hmm. um, that I highly recommend, um, and, uh, you know, other apps, um, I don't think at this point we have to admit like Slack from, if you're a tech founder, like you're yeah, that's like the DNA I, of I, the top three apps. <laughs> exactly. Like I, I, if you text me, I probably won't respond, but if you Slack me, <laughs> that's the best way to, to reach me. Um, so that I think is really, um, quite, um, effective. And, uh, you know, outside of that, um, it's, it's really other kind of like productivity apps. I'm, I'm really into like things that can hack my productivity. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, I use things like Alexa that, you know, to say certain things in the morning that are like motivational. So regardless, I jump out of bed, you know, like in fighting mode, ready to oh, go. Awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, she reads a whole speech to me in the morning. <laughs> you got this. Today's your day. Exactly, exactly. Billion dollar valuation. All you got to do is get out of bed. And I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think that there are, are, you know, I'd say that those are probably my top three, um, that are really useful. What about, uh, like podcast book recommendations? Um, okay. Last book I read, uh, was called the road less stupid. Mm, okay. Really? Yeah. Really interesting title. Um, and I actually listened to it on audible. Um, because it's why I like to do my audible books in the morning, but it was do written you by the audible too. Do you listen at like a faster speed, like speed listen? Uh, yeah. I have to do at least one and a half. Boy. I can't listen at normal speeds anymore. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, if you check it out, I highly recommend it. It's really interesting. It's written by the chairman of the board of uh, some company. I can't remember. Um, but it's basically for, for CEOs and founders and, um, giving just really, I, you know, I'm a New Yorker. I like my advice, like just straight, 
cold, candid, and it's like how to take the road less stupid. You're gonna make a lot of stupid mistakes and you can make them a little less. Uh, and so um, it's just one of those books that's like, it's like straight black coffee in the morning, right? <laughs> it really just gets the punchline. Um, so I, I definitely recommend that. Great, how about outside of work? What, what do you like to do for fun when you're not focused on building your company? Oh no, this is not a good question for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, especially with quarantine. Gosh, what am I doing outside of work? Uh, um, there's not much to do. So uh, there's something I've always done is I, I watch a lot of documentaries. I don't know if that's like a thing that I'm doing, um, but uh, when I work, I watch documentaries. And so like the last one I watched was on Chernobyl. Um, learned a ton. I could tell you a lot of random facts about a lot of random things. Uh, so uh, that I think is taking the place of like my ability to go to museums. I love to like go to museums like alone and just stay there for like a whole day. Um, so don't get to do much of that anymore. But I, I guess documentaries have kind of replaced that. Um, and I think my next thing I'll take up is like paint by numbers. Have you seen those? Oh, like I, I, like I know there's coloring books again, but not paint by numbers. We have these really elaborate canvases and it's like painting for adults uh -huh. and it's by numbers. So I have them in like my Amazon cart. I haven't bought them yet because when am I gonna have time to do this? But um, it's like these really beautiful canvases and then you just paint in the numbers and it's you've got like a Picasso or something like yeah, right, right. It's really you know what that that was like after the coloring books for adults came to fruition. Someone was like, well, "Why don't we have paint by number?" Like that was an easy one. Missed, I yeah, missed yeah. Quote on that one. <laughs> it's on my hobby list, and 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 when I do it, I'm gonna completely act like I just did it freehand. <laughs> and that is amazing. You're so talented. I know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, maybe it'll, it's, a, it's like full circle back to like when I was a kid trying to like hawk all my little like finger paintings. So I'll, I'll try and yeah, do that. With I definitely fun. picked up on that. That's full circle. I love that. Well, Chanel, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great work you're doing with MD Ally. And of course, you know, wishing you continued success moving forward. Oh, thank you so much. It was really great to, to join you. And this has been a, a great interview, right? I appreciate it. This is really great. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.